So, as a result of the public opinion that he has created, the government of Makkah now are slightly concerned about the movements that he's making, right, and the waves. Because what they are beginning to see is, is that he's not just attracting the poor and the slave, he's now getting the wealthy in, the merchants are coming in. Makkah is like London. In a summer holiday, the whole world comes to visit London. And if I imagine, if I wanted people to hear the Quran and they've never heard it, I could actually book myself a ticket and go to every country in Europe and go to their main cities and recite Quran. Or the easiest way to do it and the most economical way of doing it and less hassle for me is I just go to central London and wait for everyone else to come. And when everybody else comes and they listen to the Quran, then it will raise eyebrows in terms of what's being said. Now, one of the things that you need to remember here is, obviously here, if you recite Quran, people will respond and say, MashaAllah, it sounds very beautiful, or softens my heart, I really like it. And you see a lot of these YouTube videos talking about how people get attracted to it. But the difference at the time of Muhammad they knew Arabic. They know the language, and we're talking that we're talking about the style, the linguistic style of the Arabic that the Quran is recited in. They understood it clearly. They could understand what you're saying, it, but it doesn't mean that they understood everything what you're saying in terms of context. For example, if an ayah of the Quran says that Allah created the universe in seven layers, they wouldn't know that. They would probably think the world is still flat. How is it round? How is it this? How is it that? So. Conceptually, they're like, oh, we didn't know about this. What's this information you've got? I understand what you're saying, but I can't conceptually grasp it because I don't have this information. So we'll come to that point. So after the Quraysh have started to really sort of prod Muhammad and his family, it got to a point where we talked about last week that they wanted to approach Muhammad's family and specifically Abu Talib because Arab nations was all about tribalism which means that you've got to be part of a big tribe to have protection you've got to be a bit part of a big tribe to be economically sufficient and you have to be part of a big tribe to actually you know have power and control but you cannot go and just simply attack someone in a tribe because that could kick off a 200 year warfare with them and we've seen that in the past, where you, it will never stop. You kill someone from their family, they will retaliate, then they will retaliate, and it goes back and forward continuously. So they didn't want to start this problem in Makkah. They wanted to try and defuse it. So they go to Abu Talib and they say to him, you need to stop your nephew because he's becoming an irritation for us. He's coming to our parliament. He's conveying this message. He's going out to the marketplaces. He's attacking the way we do things, our lifestyles, our culture, our gods, our morals, our values, everything. So when his uncle did try to say, why are you creating this extra headache for me? Muhammad made it very clear to his uncle, I'm not going to stop. Understand, if it was me doing it on myself, I'll have a limit where enough pressure comes on me, I'll break and I'll stop. But because I know something that you don't, which is the existence of Allah, because I'm clear that when this is all over and the world will finish, we all die. Every one of us will be resurrected and we will be asked. And there is an eternity of punishment or, or eternity of complete pleasure for us. And I do not want to take the risk of going into hell. So I don't have a choice in this matter because I am convinced as much as I see the sun and the moon in front of me. 
So this he proposed and put in front of his uncle. His uncle saw the conviction in Muhammad and thought, that's it, I'm not going to stop you because I can see that you're not going to stop. And if you're not going to stop, I do not want to get into a situation where I have to go against you because I love you so much because you're the son of my brother and you are like my own son. You are orphan and we took you on. Therefore, if I have to live and die for my children, for the sake of what they want to do, I'll do that. And that was it. He was ready to go to war with everyone else. So when the Quraysh, the government, realized this was Abu Talib's position, and think of Abu Talib as a parliamentary member of that assembly, and he's now gone against them, they're like, okay, we have to take matters in our own hand. So what they decided to do was resort to torture. And what they started focusing on was, and we mentioned last week, they told each one of the tribes, whoever is a Muslim in your families or in your tribe, whether they be your members of your family, whether they be uh, tradespeople, whether they be outside merchants, whether they be the slaves that you've bought, start to torture them. Okay, But different tactics were needed for each and every one of them. So the most famous story was about uh, Amr bin Yasir. So Amr bin Yasir was a very famous Sahabi. He was a young lad and he had a, father, a mother by the name of Sumeya and, um, and his father as well. Now all three of them were from, they were Arabs, but they were from uh, uh, like Yemen and they all became uh, Muslim, but they were slaves. Okay, So they were owned by one particular family and that family was the family of um, Umayyah bin Khalaf. So, no, not Umayyah bin Khalaf, sorry, he's one of the other, um, uh, one of the other families. Um, so what they began to do is they used to drag, so this is how they used to torture it. So if you were a slave, they would drag you out. Now, Amr bin Yasser was a young kid. So what they would do, they would torture the mother and the father so the son would concede, right? And he would break up. They would drag the mother out in the scorching heat. We're talking about at the time of Dohor, midday, 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock, and the weather was like 40, 50 degrees. There's no shade, nothing. And they would put them outside and they would stretch them. And in some cases, what they would do is they would tie their hands and they would drag them on their faces tied to a camel or a horse and run them around the streets with their faces being literally just ripped off, right? The skin being dragged out. And at the time, Abu Jahl was, became so angry because Sumeya, the mother of Abu Amr bin Yasir, would not convert. He got so fed up with her after torturing her for weeks on end, he just took a spear and he stabbed her in the heart and he killed her. And Amr bin Yasir had to witness this. Through the period of the torture, Muhammad used to walk past and it used to, it used to kill him to watch these Muslims get tortured. And then whilst he was walking, when he saw all three of them being tortured, he said, Angel Jibreel came to Muhammad and he said, give them a message from Allah and say to them, Allah has already granted them Jannah. Whatever's going to happen, Jannah has been granted for them. And that was the only thing he could do. That's the only thing he could do. He couldn't physically do anything. And at that point afterwards, we know that, you know, Hazrat Samaya, she passed away. She got killed. The son had to watch Amr bin Yasir. And obviously, this is a trauma for the youngsters. And you'll find that in the history of Islam, many of the Sahabi faced trauma. People like Khabar bin Arat and the torture that they went through. You know, you cannot say that people don't go through trauma. When you have been put over a boulder and people are taking the, the rocks and the coal that you put in your barbecue when it's red hot and they're putting it on your back, burning your skin, burning into your bones, that's, that is going to leave a mental scar in your, in your, in, in, in your head. 
right? It's going to cause a problem for you. So this was causing a real big problem. It wasn't just physically, but it was mentally. They had to live with these things for a very, very long time. So for Muhammad this became a very difficult situation. So Amr bin Yasser, you know, his family got tortured. Then you had people like the most probably famous story was um, the story of Hazrat Bilal. Now, one Sahabi, uh, Abdullah bin Abbas, was narrating that they used to ask the they used to ask Muhammad that was there ever a case or ever a situation that when the Muslims used to get tortured and the torture was so bad that they gave up their religion or they verbally said they gave up their religion and they said that they were following back Lut and Uzza, the gods of the uh, of the idol worshippers, and Allah forgave them. And the answer was that Allah did forgive them. Okay, so there's, there's a ruling on this now. There's a Sharia rule that comes out that people are persecuted, people that are put under duress, that Allah SWT knows what's clearly in their heart. So there was an ayah of the Quran where Allah says, whoever disavows or, dis, dis, or who, who rejects Allah after having believed in Him. So anyone who accepts one Allah and then rejects Him after believing, except for those except for those who are compelled to do so, while their hearts are in content in their faith, but whoever allows himself to accept disbelief shall have God's wrath upon him and they shall receive terrible punishment. So Allah is making contrast. He said, look, some of you will voluntarily leave Islam, but you can leave Islam in many different ways. Okay? There are some who are very blatant. They say, I just reject Quran and I just reject Allah because of what I see of the Muslims, what I've seen in the country that I lived in, I don't like it. And they use people as an excuse for their own weakness of their faith to leave the religion. And then they will become YouTubers and they'll be out there conveying anti-Islam sentiments and so forth. Then there are those that leave the fold of Islam who think that they believe in Allah and they believe in the religion but the actions that they carry is a direct, you know, uh, uh, an attack on Allah and His Messenger by rejecting the belief. Like, for example, we know that those who deliberately abandon their prayer literally will fall out the fold of Islam. Those who literally abandon a hukam from Allah, which is clear, which is absolutely there in the Quran, and no one can dispute this, and they say, "But I reject this. I reject this view." Right? So there may be a whole bunch of, I accept salah, I accept fasting, but I don't believe hijab is fard. Or I don't believe hajj is fard. Or I believe alcohol is permitted. Okay, I, I think this is incorrect in the Quran. They fall, fall out the fold of Islam. And if you put that in contrast with those people who were then forced, right? And this happened, look, this happened at the time of Sahabi. These people were tortured. They were to horrendous torture. Horrendous torture. And they didn't have the strength and the might of some other people. Now, if you, for example, compare a normal citizen in the UK compared to a guy like a, a military-trained SAS guy, he could, he could probably handle a certain level of torture. He could probably handle death. There's no problem. But normal people like you and me, if we get put through torture, we'll cave in. That happens. So people like Hazrat Bilal, who was a slave, hardworking, seen the worst of life, you couldn't break him. He will not give it up. He wanted to make a point, and we'll talk about him in a second. So Allah is saying here, for those people who then just caved in, they still loved Allah. They still knew Allah was the truth. They still knew Allah was a haq. They never gave up their religion from the inside, but they were forced to speak. Allah says, we know what's in their hearts, and we accept it from them.
But there are others who will fall out. And this is the one that we have to be concerned about. Inshallah, we're not the ones who reject Islam blatantly because we don't like it. But we don't want to be those who reject Islam via our actions, via our ignorance and our stupidity. And that's one of the most important things. So this now kind of leads on to this, the story of Hazrat Bilal. And Hazrat Bilal was a slave that was from Abyssinia and he had a background of certain views of Christianity. But because he was purchased at such a young age, he didn't really, really hold any particular religion. So his master was Umayyad bin Khalaf. And, we'll, and Umayyad bin Khalaf will come back into the story a few times uh, and he will be more sort of prevalent when we talk about the story of the Battle of Badr. But to cut a long story short, that Umayyad bin Khalaf used to take out Bilal and he used to he used to ask the others, they bring him out and they used to put him on a rock. They used to put him on a rock so he's strapped up to a rock. Then they would ask the other people, pick up a hot rock and put it onto his chest, burn it. So the weight is crushing his, 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 his you know, chest cavity, his ribs, and the heat is burning him. And people used to go past and they used to say, reject, reject the religion of Islam and follow the religion of us. And he would say, ahead, ahead, ahead. To the point that he did this because of the hatred he had for these people, because of the way they were, he was willing to die just to make the point against them. You see what I'm saying? He would make the point against them because of the way that he was treated by these people. But he followed Islam because he was fully convinced that this for me is the, the, is the only way. If I go out dying and being tortured this way, then let it be. Because I want the reward from Allah. So Abu Bakr Siddiq used to walk past. And this is the nature of Abu Bakr Siddiq. So Abu Bakr Siddiq was the best friend of Muhammad Sallam and later to be his father-in-law because of his daughter Hazrat Aisha radiallahu anha. So he used to walk past. Now, Abu Bakr was a wealthy individual. He was a tradesperson. And he saw the torture that was going on with, with uh, Hazrat Bilal. And immediately he went to Umayyah bin Khalaf and he said to Umayyah bin Khalaf, name your price for this slave. And Umayyah bin Khalaf didn't want to do it. He wanted to keep torturing him to make a point. But what's one thing that is greater than your own values of life if you don't follow deen and you know, and you don't have Allah and you don't have this concept of the hereafter for a great reward. What is greater than all your values? It's money. You sell yourself out. And it didn't take a long time for Abu Bakr to convince him on a price. He said, name your price for this slave. And the Umayyad Khalaf named his price and he took Hazrat Bilal and freed him. And Abu Bakr didn't stop there. He went around looking for all the slaves and specifically women there was a Sahabi by the name of uh, Hazrat Al-Nadia and her daughter who used to be owned by some mistress who used to send them off to, you know, you know, mill the flowers and they used to treat them really, really badly. He came and he saw them and he said, how much for these slaves? <coughs> now, what she said was, I will never let you free. And Abu Bakr Sadiq, when he heard this, he said, you better hold that tongue of yours and take that back because there's a price for everything. How much for these two? And obviously... Money talks, and he bought these two as well. And it was to such an extent that Abu Bakr, whatever money and wealth that he had, that he used to spend this, this money in freeing these slaves, to the point that Abu Bakr Sadiq's father, Abu Khuafa, said to him, he said, look, Abu Bakr, if you're going to spend this much money freeing slaves, why don't you spend the money on freeing 
strong male slaves so that when you freed them, they can defend you, right? They can be brave and they can defend you and they can back you up because that's what you need. In a town like this, Abu, Abu Bakr Siddiq wasn't part of a very big family. And if he had an army of these free slaves who were strong men, he said, you'll have protection while you're being Muslim. And Abu Bakr Siddiq responded, he said, I will do what I need to do to please Allah SWT. And as a result of that, there was the ayah of the Quran that you know Allah SWT revealed in regards to uh, Abu Bakr Siddiq. And he went on to say, to those who give, and this is regarding Abu Bakr Siddiq, to those who give are pious and they believe in goodness and we will provide ease and facilitate. And so on to the end of the surah that Allah talks about how continuously that the reward that they will get. So here, remember, every incident happens, a verse is revealed. And it comes to Muhammad So when Jibreel is telling Muhammad he said, who are we talking about? He said, we're talking about Abu Bakr Siddiq because of what he's done. So all these verses are telling, look, if you sacrifice whatever you have for the sake of the greater good to take people out of their pain, out of their misery, then there is something greater for you. And I can't do justice by using the word great. It's just I, I feel ridiculous saying it because if, you know, if, I could, if I could release your burden, if I could save you from the hell, if I could give you all the pleasures of the seven layers of the universe and make it yours because you help one person, is that not enough? That's a great reward. And it's not just in the Akhirah, it's what you will also get here. You've got to believe that Allah will give you something greater here as well. So, this leads on to also the story of Khabar bin Ar-Arat. Now, Khabar bin Ar-Arat was also a Sahabi and he was a tradesperson. So he used to, he used to make things and sell things to, to the people. Now, one day Khabar bin Ar-Arat... When the torture was happening so much, we mentioned on this last week, and I just want you to understand the concept behind this. When the torture was increasing, and the, some of the Muslims who were business people, like Abu Bakr Siddiq, Khabar bin Arat, and you know, like Hazrat Ali, and they used to see other Muslims who were not so fortunate, and they were getting tortured, they saw Muhammad one day, and he was leaning his back towards the Kaaba. And Khabar bin Arat said, I went over to him, and I said, Ya Rasul, Will you not make a dua to Allah to relieve us of this persecution? And Muhammad stood up and his face was like, you know, like angry looking. And he responded back to them and he said to them, and let me just, let me just read the hadith so you understand. He said that we complained to him about the treatment that we were receiving from the Kufar. And they were being tortured on intensely hot ground. So they used to use their hands to protect themselves while they were being dragged along their faces, as well as being given other forms of torture. Now, therefore, we, we went to Muhammad we saw him there, and we requested him to pray on our behalf to Allah SWT to remove this punishment. So, Muhammad saw them, and he said, I'll promise to do so, but not now. So this shocked them, and he went on to say that those people... He said to them, those people have received far worse treatment than what you are receiving now. And he said, who are you talking about? He said, the people that came before you. And if you remember the early stage when I did the story of the boy and the king, and how when the boy said, if you can kill me, right, 
the only way you can kill me is if you take the arrow, and he said to the king, who was a polytheist, if you take the arrow and you read, there is only one God but Allah. And he did that without thinking. And that's the only way he killed the boy. But he had the boy made sure that there was an audience to watch this. So when the audience saw this, then they were convinced there must be only one God. And then the audience became Muslims or Christians at the time. And so the king became so angry because he believed that he was God. He then ordered the soldiers torture all of them. And some of the early ones that converted because of this boy, they took one of the wazir, one of, the, one, one of his own leaders who became a, a, a Christian or a Muslim as a result of that boy's hand. He said, you're going you're to disavow this religion. You're going to turn against this religion in public. He said, no, I'm not going to do that. And he said to the soldiers, dig a hole, bury him in there and leave his head sticking out. Now take a saw and cut him from the middle of his head downwards. And as they were cutting, they said, do you, do you reject? Do you reject? And he wouldn't until he died. Others, they took metal combs and they used to scrape the skin, right? Until they got locked up into the veins, into the bone. This is how they used to torture. So Muhammad said to them, I cannot ask Allah to relieve the, the, the burden until we have gone through a test greater than others because we are the greatest ummah. And until we have gone through a test, only then the reward is in proportion to the test that we will get. And if the test is great, the reward is huge. And I do not want to deprive my ummah from this. When the time is right and I have been ordered to do so, I will make the dua. But until then, if Allah is putting us through this, there's a reason. And what is that reason? If you do not go through difficulties in your life, I was today just having a conversation with a brother and he was out of work and he was feeling a bit of the pinch of being out of work for a few months now. So he asked me, can you help me get a job, right? So I talked to my manager and I see if I can get him a role. The manager eventually, he, he was quite excited. He thought it's going to happen. You know, Arsene's got a good relationship with the management. He can do it. I spoke to them and eventually she came back and he said to me, unfortunately, we're not hiring. So I told him the news. He was not happy. He was upset. And he pinged back to me and he said, I won't lie about you, bro, but it was very disappointing news. And I said to him, this is the mistake that you're making. I said, I have been through those stages when three, four, five months, you know, when you're, when you're tested economically. I said, in this country, in this country, the only thing that hurts us the most is our comfort, right? Is our economical welfare. If you go to Syria, you go to Kashmir, you go to Afghanistan, you can't hit them economically. You can't take their, take their bread and butter away from them. You know why? Because they don't have it. That's not what they care about. What they do love is their land and they'll fight for their land. We're the kind of people like we'll take half of England as long as we reduce our taxes. We don't care, right? Reduce all of my taxes and we're okay. So when you think about it, I'll say to my brother, Allah SWT gives us tests in proportion to what we can handle. And what is the thing that hits us the most? We live in a country like this, and if Allah takes a little bit of comfort away, we start to squirm, we start to break. So I said to him that for you and me, the test is this. And one lesson you have to learn in this, if you had this job, if this woman gave you the job, you would not felt the pain of being out of work, and you would not put your shukr to Allah, and you would not become a better person. You know why? Because... Whilst you've gone through this pain and not getting help from anyone, you could go to a very dark place and start saying, he hasn't helped me, she hasn't helped me, they haven't helped me, and you can become very bitter. And Allah could be looking at you thinking, that's the whole point. You're supposed to be coming to me 
You're supposed to be coming to me for rizq. You're supposed to be coming to me for the job. Why are you com com complaining about other people? Who said that they got control? I told your prophet he didn't have the power to change the hearts of the people. And he came to me and said, why can't I convert anyone? And Allah said to him, because I never gave you the power to change the hearts of the people. No man has that power. No man has that power to give you a job and give you wealth and give you rizq. Only I do. How would you have learned that lesson unless you haven't gone through those months without having a job and then it's clicked, the pennies dropped? So sometimes, my point being, if we don't go through the test, we don't appreciate, we don't learn, and we don't become better, and we don't have any wisdom to then pass to our children. Right? That's the truth. So Muhammad was saying to them, until you go through this, you will not know what it means to sacrifice yourself for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And then Muhammad went to say, and behind all of this, Allah is going to unleash one of the greatest rewards for you. There will come a time where people will travel from Hadramut to the other side of the world to the point that a sheep will not even fear a wolf on the path. Now, for them, that was unheard of. You can't even take your family down the road without being looted, without being kidnapped. Zaybin Haritha, classic story, he went with his mother. What happened? They got kidnapped, right? And he got sold off. So it happens all the time. Salman bin al-Farisi, the same story. He's from a rich family. He traveled, he got picked up, they took him to slavery and they sold him and you're in. As a slave, you can't get out. So for them to hear this, mean that you, we're going from here to here. It's like me saying to you, imagine if you have sabr, there will come a time you will never pay taxes in your life. You won't have to have a mortgage. You won't have to have any worries about what your, what your children are going to face or the fact that there's going to be war in your land or anything like this. There'll be food on your table no matter what. For you, that's like unbelievable to think that a situation like that would ever occur. This is the context of what Muhammad is trying to tell them that until you go through this, every reward is proportional to your test. If you go through something, it will not be the same as his. If you go through something, it would not be the same as hers. Your test is proportional to what you are like. Allah has shaped you and formed you and your personalities in such a way he knows what's going to develop you. Allah doesn't test you to break you. Allah tests you to make you something better. And remember that. So whenever you go through hardship, it is from Allah. It's called Masiba. It means in the Quran, it was targeted for you. It's like a, you know, like a, uh, you know, an arrow that is shot at you. It's only you shoot an arrow from the heavens. There's a billion people on this earth, is and it hits you only because that problem was for you. Whether that be your job, whether that you be your health, whether that be your children, whether that be your wealth, it is for you. And so when it hits you, remember it is from Allah. And if Allah sent it to you, get ready. You just say, right, that's the test. Now I need to do what I need to do. And if you keep that in mind, you will always succeed. Allah will never, ever let his ummah drown. He only lets those drown who keep forgetting him, who keep going to everyone else and not feeding back to him. So this was a, <clears throat> this was a really beautiful story in terms of understanding the, the sacrifices and the, and the test that you, you, you begin to uh, face. <clears throat> so this leads this so this leads on to another stage now for the for the Quraysh. That even after the state of doing torture and 
now you're seeing people like Abu Bakr Siddiq and some of the other Sahabi who are freeing the slaves and now they're getting some protection and it's not really making a huge amount of difference to the people, right, in terms of the, uh, the Muslims. So the Quraysh are still worried and concerned. This is becoming a bigger problem. So one incident happened where you've got a group of these parliamentary people, right, who will all have the same vision and the same idea that they're going to stop Muhammad Sallam. But then a problem occurs when it starts to hit home, that one of theirs starts to take a little bit of interest. So one of the, one of the Quraysh, a man by the name of Walid bin Mughera, he was one of the older chieftains, right? And they used to love him, very wealthy man. One day, as Muhammad used to recite the Quran, he got interested. So he went to go and see Muhammad to, let me have a, I'm just intrigued, yeah? Intrigue me, let's have this conversation. So Muhammad recited verses of the Qur'an and he liked it. I mean, who wouldn't? It's from Allah. Even the, even the enemies of Allah, when they hear these verses, they, it will, you, have, you have to be intrigued because it's from your Creator. So the rumours got out to the rest of Quraysh that, oh, Walid bin Mughera sat down with the Prophet Muhammad or they sat down with Muhammad and he's got interested. This is going to be bad news because if the, if the people find out the parliamentary member, the councillor who is pushing this idea, and we're supporting him, is now going against our idea, we're going to have a problem. You're going to cause a bit of a disparity in the public opinion. So Abu Jahl and a few other people got together and decided we need to go and speak with him. So they said, let's do the first thing. Let's gather some money for him. So they go up, they gather some money, bribe, right? So it happens. Congress do it all the time, right? Give a little bit of money, sway him to our side, you know, tow our line. So they go to Walid bin Mughera and said, oh, yeah, it's a gift for you. He said, what's this money for? He said, so just we did a collection for you. We thought we, you deserve it. He said, you know I'm the wealthiest person in, in Makkah. Why do I need this money? I've got my own. So Abu Jahl said to him, listen, let me get straight to the point here. People are hearing that you have been having these conversations with Muhammad and this is becoming problematic. I think it might be a very good idea if you come out in public and say to the people that what you heard was just complete nonsense. Okay? Let's just, you know, let's just toe that line. Okay? So Walid Mughera was like, okay, I'm not really sure what to say here. He says, when this man Muhammad speaks, there's nothing like what he says. When he speaks, there's splendor in what he says. The way he says it, there's gracefulness. And he is effective and productive at all levels of what he says. Now he's describing the language of the Quran. So he's saying, what can I actually criticize? Because it's perfect. So Abu Jah is getting a bit annoyed. He said, look, we need to um, figure this out and you need to come out at some point. So Walid bin Mughal said, okay, I, I get your point. We need to sort this out. You go, let me have a think about it. Okay. So he goes off and at some point, they, they all sort of get together again at the parliament. So they have a discussion. Now, what their big concern was is that it is now coming to the, the season of the pilgrimages. So they're all going to turn up. And if they all turn up from out of town and they, Muhammad Salam is going to do what he does, he's going to go out and spread his dawah, he's going to recite the Quran, and he's, you know, merry men are going to go out there and start spreading the dawah. It's going to be a problem for us. So what do we do in this case? So we need to come up with an idea or a view about him that we are all on the same page. Because if we get modelled up, if you say one thing, he says one thing, he's against Muhammad Sallam, people say, you're all contradicting yourselves. 
So therefore, he must be right. So let's all agree. So they sat down and had this conversation. So they said to so they said to Wali um, uh, bin They said to him, "Okay, should we say that he's a soothsayer, right? So soothsayer, these people who had connections with the jinn. So the jinn's know information and stuff that's that that that, that is well, you know, well known, not well known, but unknown to people. The ghaib, okay? He said, "No, he can't be a soothsayer because everyone knows what soothsayers are like." He doesn't engage in sort of rhyme mumbling and some dog rule usage, right? You know, so when you see these weird movies and you've got some witchcraft, they start chanting around with sticks and saying different... Because he doesn't do that. He doesn't do any of that that they all do. So you can't say he's a sorcerer because sorcerers have a particular way of handling themselves. They said, okay, should we say he's a crazy person possessed by jinn, spirits? He said, no, because he doesn't act or behave like what we have seen of people that have been possessed. He doesn't do the choking, he doesn't do the voice changing, he doesn't start having fits, can't do any of that. Okay, how about if we say that he's a poet? He said, no. He said, we're all poets and we're excellent at poetry. And the people that are coming in are good at poetry. What he speaks is some next level. This is not even poetry. That is the most obvious one they're going to catch us out on. Okay, so let's leave that. So they said... What about a sorcerer? What if we say he's not a but he's a sorcerer. He actually can do some sort of witchcraft and he can do some sort of magic. He said no, because each one of them, they what they used to do, they take knots and they used to untie the knots. And they have, all have the same traits, all of these uh, sorcerers. He said he doesn't do any of that. You haven't seen, do, he, hasn't have any, he doesn't have any physical bowls or arrows or, 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 or dices, nothing. He doesn't use anything. So how are you going to convince anyone? So he thinks very hard. He said, look, the best thing I can think of is that we say he's a very specific kind of sorcerer. That what he does, his trait is that he can divide mother and father, child and mother, brothers and sisters, husband and wives. Because that's what we see, right? He's gone out there, he's given his dawah, so the kids who become Muslim, their mothers are not Muslim. And so that's causing fitna in their homes, right? And those who are husband and wife, some of the wives have become Muslim and their husbands haven't. And that's caused issue there. That's visible. So that's the closest and the plausible idea that we can push through to the people that begin to come. So Allah SWT reveals something about Walid bin Maghara. And he says to, about Walid, He's, Allah says, leave me to deal with him who I created alone. I created Walid bin Mughera and I made for him extensive wealth and sons to be seen. And concerning those men who had rendered the Quran into disparate parts, God says, and so by your Lord, we will certainly question all of them concerning what they have been doing. So all these people that are coming together and planning all of this, Allah saying, I'm going to deal with each and every one, and you will know this as Allah's promise is always true. And so the ayah goes on that Allah Ta'ala explains even this, so the verses revealed to Muhammad regarding it, and they even said that it's just a jumble of dreams. He's just made it up. He's a poet. So let him bring up us, let him bring up bring us a sign, like those from the former prophets uh, were dispatched. So 
they, so they were at loss in terms of what they could say about him. So they all agreed at this point, but Allah has already addressed them. So they went round, and when the pilgrimages started to come, they took their places in different areas. And as they appeared, they said, hey, do you know this guy Muhammad, he's troublemaker, don't go anywhere near him, he's doing this, he's doing that. And so the reality of what was happening in Makkah in terms of the families and what they saw kind of matched up. Okay, But that didn't stop Muhammad going directly to the people and then recited in verses, which then changed some of their minds, or at least intrigued them. And so a time came when they wanted to try and bribe Muhammad Sallam. So they, a lot of these politicians don't take one tactic, they'll take one or two different tactics. Okay, let's try to dissuade people from him, but let's see if we can crack a deal with this person as well. So they got together and said, which one of us is the most learned about sorcery? Uh, soothsayers, witchcraft and you know uh, poetry etc. So they chose this man by the name of Utbah bin Rabia. They said you go and you have a conversation with him. Now listen to this conversation. So Utbah bin Rabia goes to see Muhammad Okay, they agreed you're going to go and talk to him. So he says oh nephew you know the status and the respect you, your people that give you and the nobility of your lineage. But you've caused us so much trouble to your so much trouble. By this you have destroyed their unity, you ridiculed their values, their morals, their values, their gods. You left nothing, you left no stone unturned. So let me say, ask you this. Is it money that you want? Is it like power? Because if it is, just say so. We'll gather all the money in the world and it's yours. Right? You want to be the wealthiest amongst us. If it's not money that you want, maybe it's status. Maybe you want to be a leader. Okay, we'll make you king. You're from a noble family, you're from a good lineage. There's no harm in making you our leader. We'll put you there. If that's not what you want, if it's it women, you can have all the women you want. They're all yours. Take them. And if that's not what you want, if you do seriously believe that you're sick and there's a jinn or you got a possession, and tell us, we'll call the best doctors in the whole of Arabia and they will come and they'll deal with you. So he started negotiating. So he went there, he put Muhammad look at his negotiating tactics. First, he put his position. You're in this situation, you're causing us problems, you're causing this. So we recognise, yeah, we accept that, right? You know you're causing problems, we know you're causing problems. But we're willing to meet you more than halfway. We'll give you money, we'll give you wealth, we'll give you power, etc. So Muhammad Sallam, and I wanted to read this verse of the Quran. So Muhammad Sallam um, responds back, and it's it's beautiful because it's the way that he that is the way that Muhammad Sallam responded back to this. So Muhammad Sallam says to Utbah bin Rubia, he said, "Are you done talking?" And in front of everyone, and Utbah is quite shocked because most people would take the deal. He says, yeah, say what you want to say. Immediately, Angel Jibreel was with Muhammad Sallam and Surah Al-Fusilat was revealed to him. And here, from the first 13 verses, right, he, and it starts off with Hamim. And he goes on to say, and I'll read the English, this is what he said to Utbah uh, al This is a revelation from the most compassionate and the most merciful. This is a book whose verses are perfectly explained, a Qur'an in Arabic for people who know. 
like yourself, delivering good news and warning, yet most of them turn away so they do not hear. They say, our hearts are veiled against what you are calling to us. There is deafness in our ears and there is a barrier between us and you. So do whatever you want, so shall we. Say, O prophet, I am only a man like you, but it has been revealed to me that your God is only one God. So take the straight way towards him and seek his forgiveness and woe to the polytheist. Those who do not pay their taxes, their, their zakat, and are in denial of the hereafter. But those who believe and do good will certainly ha have a never-ending never reward. Ask them, O Prophet, how can you disbelieve in the one who created the earth in two days? And how can you set up the equals with him? That is the Lord of the worlds. He placed on the earth firm mountains standing high, showered his blessing upon it, and ordained all its means of sustenance, totaling four days exactly for all who ask. Then he turned towards the heaven when it was still like smoke, saying to it, to the earth, submit willingly or unwillingly. They both responded, we submit willingly. So he formed the heaven into seven heavens in two days, assigning to each its mandate. And we adorned the lowest heaven with stars like lamps for beauty, for the protection that is the design of the almighty all-knowing. If they turn away, then say, O prophet, I warn you of a mighty blast like the one that befell Ard and Thamud. And immediately, Utban Rabia put his mouth, hand over the mouth of Muhammad Sallallahu and said, Don't say any more. All the hairs on the back of his neck stood up. He said, Don't say anything else. And then he left. He didn't even go back to the parliament where Abu Jahl and everyone was sitting, Abu Sufyan. He went straight home. They sat raided. They saw him and they saw him go off. That what happened to him? So Abu Jahl goes off to see him. So Abu Jahl, he's a smart guy. He has a suspicion. He sees Utbadr and Biya. He says, What's the problem? He says, Sounds like you had a really nice conversation, you know, something that, you know, impressed you. What's the deal here? Right? You were supposed to come back and let us know what, what happened. You you were supposed to negotiate with him. You know what he said to uh, Abu Jahl? He says, take my advice. This man will do what he wants. I suggest you leave him alone. If there are other Arabs out there that will kill him, then your job is done. You don't have to touch him. If he wins and takes the whole of Arabia, then you are all in good position because he's one of you. But I will tell you one thing now. What he speaks and what he says is something different. It is not anything that we've heard of. And I, my suggestion to you is leave him alone. Let him do what he wants. Because whatever is behind him is not going to stop. But I will tell you this, I'm not going to get involved. That was Utbah bin Rabia's response after seeing Muhammad and talking to him. All Muhammad did was reveal this ayah of Surah Al-Fusirat verses 1 to 13. The power of that verse. Because it's in that language that he understood. But another interesting thing was that when he when he spoke to when he spoke to the uh, the other Quraysh, they said, "What did he say?" He goes, "Some I understood and some I didn't, because the verse talks about the heavens, the stars, whatever. We don't know this information yet. Fourteen, they didn't know this, but it sounds all correct. It sounds all right. So here you begin to see 
that now those people are encountering Muhammad they're beginning to see now there is something very, very powerful about Muhammad and this Quran that he's holding. But the last thing I want to talk about was the fact that because of the intrigueness, maybe from this statement that Utbah bin Rabia made that got out to Abu Jahl and they got to people like Abu Sufyan and so forth, an incident occurred where one night Muhammad used to pray all through the night, so he used to recite the Quran. And those houses, they're like, they're like tents basically, okay? They're not like double cavity walls with Celotex 150 mil, right? Nothing like this, right? They're all just, everybody can hear anything if you're reciting loud. And Muslim used to do this. So one night, Abu Jahl, uh, Abu Sufyan and Al-Akhnas, Al-Akhnas bin Sharik, three of these of the Quraysh leaders came to Muhammad's house. Three of them did not know that they were all coming. They all sat outside Prophet's house, nearby. They took their positions and they had a cloak and a hood on. And they sat there all night listening to the recitation. It was addicted, right? Things he's saying, they understood some things. Wow, what is that he's referring to? Something magical. When the pre-dawn was coming, they got up and they left. When they walked away, they all ran into each other and they knew that they were all at Prophet Muhammad's house, outside. They said, listen, this is not good. If the people find out that we, the leaders, are at his house listening to Quran, this is going to be really bad for us. Right? So let's not do this again. So they went home. The next day, they couldn't help it. They came back again, not telling each other. They thought, well, the, the other two are going to come. I'll go back and I'll listen. And they all came back and they listened to the verses again through the night. Came back and they ran into each other again. So they said, we shouldn't do this. Third night, they'd done it again. They were so captivated by listening to the Quran. And they said, on the third, third night, when they all saw each other, they said, let's make a pact and a vow that we're not going to come back. And they didn't. The next morning, they woke up and they were thinking about these verses. Three nights have had this. So Al-Akhnas takes his walking stick, he's an old man, and he goes over to see Abu Sufyan. And he says to Abu Sufyan, what did you think about what he was saying? And Abu Sufyan said, there are many things that I understand, but there are a lot of things that I'm not sure about what he's saying. Like there's information about the ghayb, the unseen here, but it's impressive, no doubt. Al-Akhnas goes off to Abu Jahl and he says to Abu Jahl, what do you think? Now there's two hadiths, right? There's another man who sees Abu Jahl as well. But, the, but uh, let me just give you the context of both of these hadiths put together because they're very similar. He says, what do you think about that verse? Do you think this man is a prophet? Abu Jah's response is, there is no doubt in my mind he's a prophet. There's no doubt in my mind he's a prophet. What he says and what, the way he said it, this cannot come from any human being, any man. But understand one thing. He's from the Abdul Sham's family. And I am from the opposing family. For hundreds of years, we've been fighting for control over Makkah. He said, we're like racehorses, neck on neck, right? Trying to get control over, giving control, get military control, getting control of the parliament, giving food to the pilgrimages, giving food, feeding the poor, giving zakat out. We've always wanted to control. And just when we've now got the control, my family have got the control, they come out and they say they have a prophet in their family. They say they have a prophet. 
No chance. If I accept him open as a prophet, we're done. My family's gone. Pride, ignorance, and the greed of power is what prevented him from following the truth. He goes, I will never follow him. Never. So even after that, interestingly enough, Abu Jahl and Abu Sufyan. Abu Sufyan is from the same family as Muhammad Sallam, okay? So Abu Jahl and Abu Sufyan are sitting there. So Muhammad Sallam is walking. And Abu Jahl says to Abu Sufyan, oh, there comes the prophet from your family. So Abu Sufyan turns around, he looks at uh, Abu Jahl in a very disgruntled way. He said, and what? Is it inconceivable that a prophet could come from our family? Is that what you're saying? He said, I didn't say anything like that. He said, let me tell you something. Even within our family from the lower caste and from the lower in terms of wealth, it's conceivable we could have a prophet. Muhammad Sallam walked past him and he heard this conversation. And he returned back and he said to, and he said to um, both of them, first he looked at Abu Sufyan and he said to Abu Sufyan, the only reason you said what you said is because of the fact you have so much pride in your family, in your tribe. That's the only reason why you would think that there will profit be coming. It's not because you believe in me. And then he looked at Abu, uh, Abu Jahl and he said to Abu Jahl and the same famous verse in the Quran, he said, you, my friend, he go, you will cry a lot and smile very little. The time is coming for you. So here you now you begin to see that the development of this campaign against Muhammad Sallam and just finishing off on some of these verses. So there was a, just last thing that was mentioned. I was talking about how Muhammad Sallam was reciting the Quran quite loudly. So Allah Ta'ala on this matter, he said, and when they see you, O Muhammad, they take you for a joke saying, is this fellow he whom God sent as a messenger? He might almost have enticed us away from our gods if we had not stayed patiently with them. They will know when they see the punishment who it is who strays furthest away from the path. So this reminds me of, you know what? You know, subhanAllah, in this day and age, you know some of us, alhamdulillah, and I pray all of us, you know, follow the straight path and we do our greater deeds, right? The deed of doing your fasting and your hajj and your you know, your salah, this is great. This is your relationship between Allah. But there are two other elements of your life as well. Your relationship with yourself and your relationship with other people. And I'm talking about your dawah. You know, when you give dawah, you know, I expect it from non-Muslims, right, to ridicule us, yeah, or think we're just preachers or we're just like this. It's not, for the youngsters, it's not fashionable, it's not cool, right, to be, you know, a guy with a big beard or wearing a hijab or wanting to go to pray, you know, everybody wants to break the rules, right, and just, and be like everyone else other than Islam. And when you try to, and you try to invite, and some brothers, they know what I'm talking about, when you, when you have your friends and you go out with them, which is things not Islamically orientated, they're with you, football match, shisha, lunch, dinner, boom, 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 everyone's there. But the moment you say to them, come and join me for a class, let's learn about the deen, let's sit and learn, or let's go to the masjid and pray, they are gone like a shot. And they're not just gone like a shot, they take the they make a joke out of you. Mabziya, look at this guy, he's this, he's that, right? You know, behaving like he's a preacher. 
and they take it. And it's a shame because Allah here really is talking about the kuffar who are against you. But the Muslims are behaving like this against Muslims. So when I look at this, this gives me motivation to do more. Keep laughing at me. Keep laughing at me. Keep not taking things seriously. Because on the day Allah says, you will see who will cry and who will laugh. And that's the, that's, the most, that's the most important thing from this lesson that we've learned. And then Allah goes on to say that when uh, uh, he, he wanted to say, and do not speak the prayer loudly. That is when you recite it, let the polytheists, don't let the polytheists hear it and curse the Quran. And nor speak it too softly let, so that your followers won't hear the Quran and learn from it. So seek a path in between this. So this verse, you people have heard this, that... You know, they used to say that if you recite the Quran really loud, the Kufan with the head, they say, oh, yeah, Paki, you this, you that, start abusing you from all angles and so forth. What used to happen was when Muhammad used to recite the verses, the Quran, and even in his Salah, the, if he used to recite it loud, he used to recite it loud, what used to happen was the other Quraysh who were anti-Muslims, they hated it. And that caused, forced them to hurl abuse while he was reciting. And those who were impartial weren't sure and they wanted to hear it they didn't want to listen to it or show the people who were anti-islam that they were listening in case that they got berated for listening so what allah had ordered muhammad was tone down your voice to a level so that those who don't like you when you're reciting it and you're reciting softly it doesn't bother them for or enough that they can't hear it for you for them to retaliate but enough for those who are enticed by what you're saying to be able to listen and then try to follow. So this is also important in the way that we, you know, when we carry our dawah. So, you know, when you're doing dawah to people and you're talking, don't try to make a hoo-ha about what your point you're trying to make. You talk to someone, do it enough to the point that there may be some people who may not like, because people who don't like what you say may turn around and cause more damage for your dawah okay so if you do it in such a way and there are other people other people who start hearing what you say they come closer and they'll start listening and those who don't like it it's not enough to bother them so subhanallah this is the um, the lesson that we get but jazakallah khair inshallah we'll leave it at that and uh, we will uh, see you guys next week